We live in a time where almost everyone agrees on nothing except for this very issue, that 2020 is crazy. Now, how many of us, if we could rewind the tape to January 1st and look out toward this year, who of us could have imagined the way our life would be rearranged? How many of us would have thought that so many things that we took for granted would be taken from us? Who would have thought that we would have to gather at worship and have masks over our face or to stay at home and to shelter in place? These are things that were on no one's mind. And on top of that, if the pandemic were not enough, there's all kinds of other crazy going on in, the world, in this world. You probably heard of the murder hornets that were discovered earlier this year. These giant hornets that kill other hornets. And I don't want to be anywhere around these things. Hearts are breaking seeing news about the devastating wildfires that are going on. Last week, we, we watched two hurricanes in the Gulf at the same time, and we were told that this has never happened before. And I don't know if that's the case or not, but if it's going to happen, surely it would happen in the year 2020, right? And then as I was listening to the newscast about those hurricanes scrolling through my Twitter feed, I found out that in my zip code, there were mosquitoes found that tested positive for the West Nile virus. And my immediate thought was, sure, why not? It's already crazy. <laughs> I don't know if this really adds that much more to the crazy. I remember last fall being um, humored by the bumper sticker for the election that was really cheering for a giant meteor. The subtitle on this says, just in it already. And then I thought that was humorous until a week ago Saturday, I saw that there is actually a meteor that is supposed to pass really close to Earth the day before the election. Now, the scientists believe it's going to pass the Earth, and if it were to hit the Earth, it would probably be burned up anyway. But the article I read raised the question, what if the meteor wants to vote? <laughs> I was like, that would probably be crazy. But this year is crazy. Well, all levity aside, it is a tough year. COVID is wreaking its havoc upon our lives, and so many of us are not doing well. We're trying to hold it together. We're trying to put on a brave face. But so many people are struggling. And you may not be struggling deeply yourself, but many of us are, and many of our neighbors are, and many people within our city are. This article posted in the Christian Post tells us that 40% of Americans have been reported struggling with mental health and substance abuse. That's not good. One third reported feeling anxiety and depression. One quarter said they were struggling with trauma-related issues. One in eight reported developing an increasing substance abuse problem. On top of that, 11% of people say they seriously have committed or seriously considered suicide in the last few months. This is a tough time. Anxiety, depression, a sense of vulnerability. Times like this surface questions in our mind, questions like this. Where is God in all of this? What is he up to? Does he care? Is he watching us from a distance? Is he involved? Is he responsible? These are questions that a lot of people, if they're not asking outright, are probably thinking at some point in their journey through this year. And so I want us to spend as I mentioned, in the next five weeks, talking about this issue. And today, 
I want us just to camp out on this issue of what life is like in our world of pain and suffering. And we know that it's a struggle. And we know that life is difficult. But what are our options as we think through this? And I want us to take as a launching point a man named Job. Some people say the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It's a story of a man whose life was going well. He had everything going for him. And then one catastrophe after another fell upon him. Some of it due to the the hands of other people. Some of it due to nature. And in a matter of time, he had his entire world turned upside down. And so we want to, to look and see what happened with him and to contemplate just a minute some of the voices he listened to, to ask ourselves what are some of the voices helping us make sense, and then what God is saying to us in the good news of Jesus. And so let's take just a moment and pray and ask God to be with us and to teach us during this time together. Lord, we come before you in the midst of this crazy year. I personally can't remember another year quite like this. I imagine many of my friends here can't either. We've gone through difficulties, but, but for a worldwide pandemic to be wreaking the havoc that it is leaves us with so many questions and a struggle to make sense of it all. Would you be with us during this time when we open these ancient scriptures to see what it has to say? Would you help us to process our thinking and our feeling through the grid of what the scriptures teach? And be pleased to reveal yourself afresh for us in Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. And this is how the book of Job begins. And I'm going to read sections from the first three chapters. I'm going to admit, omit some verses that give us kind of the backstory Because I want us to, to put ourselves in the position of Job. And to, in a sense, experience what he may have been experiencing without access to the backstory that we're given in the book of Job. And so this is how it begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness 
and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. Let me read that verse again. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 7. Job was struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a broken piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. They made an appointment to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Chapter 3, verse 1. Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that was said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor let light shine upon it. Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not? Verse 25. For the one thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest but trouble comes. The book of Job opens by telling us that Job is a righteous person. He's blameless. What happened to him was not his fault. And yet his suffering was very great to the point where he cursed the day he was born, to the point where he longed for death, and he says, I am not okay. And so the question arises, why is Job suffering? That's the question that his friends begin to wrestle with him over. And over the next 34 chapters, 
They take one tactic and another to convince Job that he must have sinned, that what happened to him must be his fault. Otherwise, this wouldn't have happened. And so we ask the question, why is Job suffering? And behind that question is another question. How do we make sense of suffering? Job listened to the voices of his friends. And in a sense, whenever we suffer, we listen to the voices of our friends and our society and our culture. And there are a number of different voices that come to us. And they can be really reduced to three kinds of worldviews. The reasons that are given spring forth from a worldview of pantheism, a worldview of atheism, and a worldview of theism. And I want to spend just a few moments looking at what some of these answers are. And I'm going to bring up different religions and worldviews, and I'm not doing it to pick on anyone. Simply, these are voices that are coming at us. And to ask the question, what are our options to understand this? So, for example, out of the idea of pantheism, that is, that reality in this world are somehow one, we have the teaching of Buddhism. Siddhartha Gautama was a prince who had been in the cozy confines of his palace until one day he took a journey outside. As he disguised himself, he went out. And in the streets, he saw immense suffering. He saw a dead man, an old man, a poor man, and a sick man. And it crushed him. And he sought to understand, why is this the case? Why is the world like this? And he sat down in the wake of this and contemplated life and the meaning of life and what could possibly be the answer. And one day, as he was sitting under the tree, thinking about these issues, he came to see that life is suffering because we have an attachment to the things of this life. We desire certain things to be different than what they are. And because of this attachment, because of this desire, we suffer too. And the solution is to cease desire, to shut that down, to detach yourself from any kind of affection in this world. And in doing so, you can become enlightened. And as he sat underneath that tree, he determined that's where he wanted to go. And in that moment, he became the enlightened one, the Buddha. In his first sermon, he talked about this very issue to his students. And he gave them an eightfold path to journey on, in which they can too become enlightened. And so, Buddhism helps us in one sense to understand that suffering is a real part of this world, but it tells us in order to deal with it, we need to detach ourselves. We need to shut down desire. An old secular version of this might be called Stoicism. There's also out of the pantheo pantheistic worldview the idea of karma from Hinduism. This is the idea that whatever you put out in the world will come back upon you. So that if you are suffering, it is your fault. You are paying off debt from a previous existence. And if you, if you do the right things, you can come back in a different form or a higher form and hopefully eventually break out of suffering altogether. And it's hard to understand with the idea of karma why anyone who embraces that would seek to alleviate suffering because to do so would be to interrupt that person's karma, would be to interrupt their own atonement for their sins. And so Hinduism says, basically, 
you have to perform well in order to break out of cycles of suffering. So within a pantheistic worldview, suffering is always your fault. It's either because you're too attached to the things of this world or you desire things and you shouldn't. Or you're paying for past mistakes. What are those mistakes? You don't know. It happened in a previous existence, but you're paying for it now. That's the brief snapshot and a simplistic snapshot of a pantheistic worldview. There's also an atheistic worldview that gives answers to the question of suffering. And I want to refer to the writings of Richard Dawkins, one of the most well-known atheists of our time. In his book, River Out of Eden, he said this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. He goes on and says, this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil or good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He goes on and says, nature is not cruel, only piteously indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking purpose. I wonder how Job would respond to Dr. Dawkins in saying that his suffering is neither good nor bad. It just is. He shouldn't care. In an atheistic worldview where there's no purpose, no meaning, your suffering has no purpose. It has no meaning. There is no redemption. You just either have good luck or bad luck. So deal with it. Another atheist by the name of Jeffrey Coyne, a professor at the University of Chicago, said secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize we must forge our own purposes and ethics. But although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't. We make our own purposes, and they're real. Now, if you're asking yourself, if the universe is purposeless, then how do we make purpose if we're part of the universe? If there is no meaning to the universe, then how can we forge meaning if we're part of the universe? On an atheistic worldview, you're left with deluding yourself. That you can form meaning, that, that suffering has any significance, but also within an atheist secular worldview, suffering always wins. It gets the last word. In contrast to a pantheistic worldview and an atheist worldview, the theistic worldview tells us that suffering is a mystery. It's not an illusion. It oftentimes doesn't make sense. But it is a real thing in a world that a real God created. And so Job and his friends spend the next 34 chapters of the book of Job talking about what Job must have done. Because in the thinking of his friends, he did something wrong to deserve his suffering. 
And we know the backstory, at least part of it. He did nothing wrong. But over the course of these 34 chapters, as Job maintained his innocence, and as he said, I've done nothing to deserve all this terrible things that have happened to me, we see a rising within him, a demanding spirit. A spirit that wants to have its day in court with God. Who wants to put God on the defensive and to ask him, why is this happening? And the implication behind that is God must not be just. And so surprisingly, at the end of the book of Job, God visits Job. And he's heard all his questions and the accusations behind them. And God, in a sense, says to him, I want to I ask you a few preliminary questions. And so he, he explains to Job the intricacies of the universe. He says, Job, were you there on the day when I laid the foundations of the world? Were you there when I called the bright sun into existence? Did you wade through the waters of the deep when I filled this earth with water? Did you hang the Pleiades and the constellation of the Orion and the bear in the sky? Did you give the horse its strength? Did you give the eagle the ability to rise up and mount on, on wings? Job began to learn very quickly. He actually knew very little about the sovereignty of God. He wants to accuse God for the way in which the world is running. But Job basically says at the end of this time with God, I have no idea how anything works. And this is what he says. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to speak, which I did not know. In other words, what Job does is he rests himself in the sovereignty of God, whose ways are inscrutable, who runs this universe with infinite wisdom. And so he rests in that. And the end of the book of Job, we're told that God gives him more than he ever had. In a sense, his life is restored. His, his children weren't restored, but he had new children. He had greater wealth and riches than before and influence. But we're left in the book of Job with the issue of the sovereignty of God. In a sense, God said to Job, I don't ask for your understanding, but I do ask for your trust. And that's where Job landed. He says, I will trust you. The sovereignty of God, the scriptures are filled with verses to help us understand this. In the book of Isaiah, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. And the scripture also tells us that seemingly chance events like the casting of lots, or what we might think of as the rolling of dice, are under the complete and utter sovereignty of God. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Jesus himself asked the question, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even your hairs of your head are numbered. Here Jesus reminds people listening to him that they are of great worth to the Father, greater worth than the sparrows. And nothing can happen to the sparrows apart from the will of God. And God knows you so well that even the hairs on your head are numbered. For some of us, that's a greater challenge for God than others, perhaps. (laughs) That was a joke. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Those all things include the good, the bad, and the ugly. Those things that we find pleasant, as well as those things that we find bitter. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. As someone has said, there's not a single maverick molecule running loose in God's universe, but it's all under his sovereign care. We hear that, don't we? And the question still arises, then why? If everything is under your sovereign care, Lord, and nothing is left to chance, how do we understand bad things that happen? How do we understand things like pandemics and hurricanes? The premature and seemingly unfair death of a person. How do we understand that? Why, Lord, is there this kind of suffering going on? David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, famously asked this question. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Here David Hume articulates in philosophical language what so many people wrestle with. Why, God? If you're able to prevent these things, then why don't you? Do you have the power? Do you care? And if you do, then why? Why is there evil? Why do we have to live in the kind of world that we live in? What the scriptures do for us, my friends, this long story about Jesus, is it takes these questions and it invites us into the story of Jesus and God's purposes for us in the gospel of Jesus. Dr. Timothy Keller said, suffering is actually at the heart of the Christian story. As we take the the philosopher's questions and enter into the story of Jesus, we find that the story of Jesus is all about suffering in this world. When we open the scriptures, we we see God creating a world that he calls very good. And he enters into a partnership with humanity and calls them to rule alongside him. 
to spread the blessings of his kingdom over the face of this world. And as that story unfolds, we don't get very long until we get to page three. And we find out that humanity wants to take things into its own hands. It wants to determine right and wrong for itself. It wants to rule apart from God. And in the wake of that comes not only interpersonal suffering, but suffering in this world. In the long wake of this, God makes a promise. He clings to this world and makes a promise that he will undo the curse one day. And what the prophets long for and what the people of Israel desired to see to come to fruition, it was that day when God would reverse the curse. But God took a step that no one understood, that no one saw coming. He clothed himself in flesh and came to this world in the person of Jesus. He showed us what a beautiful life lived would look like. And we see him experiencing suffering and persecution in this world. He was called a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief. We watched in the story as it unfolds, Jesus being crucified and nailed to the cross, suffering the worst that humanity had to dish out upon him because they didn't want what he had to offer. We sing about this at Christmas. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life, he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd, friend. Leaving riches without number. Born within a cattle stall. This the everlasting wonder. Christ was born, the Lord of all. I love that line. Come to earth to taste our sadness. No philosophy, no worldview, no idea ever entered into the minds of humans that God would come, clothe himself in flesh to not only taste our sadness, to experience our suffering, but to lay down his life in death. And not only that, to overcome death. So my friends, Christianity proclaims that God is completely sovereign and that God has suffered deeply. I want to be careful here. God himself is sovereign over all and he's not subject to this world like you and I are. But God, when he clothed himself in the person of Jesus, took our sorrows upon himself. And we can say that God himself tasted our sorrow, tasted our sadness. He knows sorrow deeply because he suffered deeply. That's why Philip Yancey said in his book, Where is God when it hurts? Any discussion of how pain and suffering fit into God's scheme ultimately leads back to the cross. Because it's in the cross of Jesus where God deals with sin and suffering, where he puts an end to the penalty of sin there for all who would trust in him so that one day he can put an end to all evil without ending us. That's why John Stott, the late Anglican minister, said, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on a cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God 
who was immune to it. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this. The answer of the book of Job, that God knows what he's doing, so be quiet and trust him, is right, but insufficient. It is inadequate because alone it is cold because, and because the New Testament gives more with which to face the terrors of life. I'm bringing you this quote, and I'm a little bit uncomfortable with what he's saying here. It is sufficient that God knows what he's doing. And we can rest in that. Because what's the alternative? Complete and utter craziness. And I think what he's getting at here is, is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God can be insufficient if all we say to someone is, is, God, is God is sovereign, so don't worry. I, I've seen the, the Christian equivalent of this when someone is in deep suffering and someone just walks by and drops Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose and walk away. And they don't sit with the person in their sadness. They don't taste it with them. So yes, the sovereignty of God is an amazing truth. But Tim Keller here says there's more to the story. We turn from God but God did not abandon us. Only Christianity of all the world's major religions teaches that God came to earth in Jesus Christ and became subject to suffering and death himself. See what this means? Yes. We do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it is so random. But now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He's been there and he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe every, I'm sorry, wipe away every tear. Someone might say, but that's only half an answer to the question why. Yes but it's the half we need. Why does God allow suffering? It's a mystery. Ultimately, we don't know. But what we do know is that God loves us. He gave himself for us in the person of Jesus, and he has promised that the curse will be undone and that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes that he himself has suffered. As it says in the scriptures, in our affliction, he was afflicted. He's tasted our sadness. And that's the half of the answer that we really need. And he's also, by the way, sealed that answer in the resurrection of Jesus. It's not simply enough that Jesus died for us. He rose again from the dead, guaranteeing that what will happen to this world will look an awful lot like what happened to Jesus in his resurrection when God comes and makes all things new. So my friends, Jesus gives us a meaning and a hope that suffering can never take away. And while we may not understand, and while we may ask why, in the midst of it, we have the hope that was bought and sealed with the blood of Jesus. 
In conclusion, I want to tell you a quick story about Horatio Spafford. You may know this man and his story. Horatio Spafford was a successful attorney in Chicago in the middle of the 19th century. He had invested um, heavily in real estate and just everything was going well. He was a, a partner in his law firm. He had a, a wife and four beautiful daughters. Everything was going well until it all went crazy. In the Chicago fires of 1870, he lost all his investment. He lost his law firm. In the wake of that, he and his family decided to take a vacation to Europe. And, and while they were there, they were going to help the evangelist Dwight L. Moody to perform some revivals and to sponsor those and help fund those. And last-minute business kept Spafford at home. So he sent his wife and his daughters on ahead of him and their ship collided with an iron shipping vessel and sank in 12 minutes. In the chaos of what was going on, Mrs. Spafford lost track of her daughters. She was picked up by a raft, and she got to England, Liverpool. She's texted, not texted, she sent, um, what was that called? A telegram, sorry probably a text in our day, a telegram back then with the words, saved alone. I don't know what to do. Spafford got that telegram and caught the next ship to Liverpool to join his wife. And when that ship came to the place where his wife's ship perished, where his daughters perished, the captain of the ship called him up and said, to the best of our determination, this is where it happened. And in that moment, as grief welled up within him, as he had to wrestle deeply with how everything in his life went upside down and went crazy, he began to process his pain and to process it with the gospel. And so there's different accounts for whether he wrote his famous poem at that moment or whether he wrote it when he, when he arrived on shore. But in either case, this is what he said. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrow, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. My friends, there is no promise that you and I escape suffering in this world. Jesus didn't. Those who have gone before us didn't. 
But here's the promise, that God walks us through it and that all of our suffering will be redeemed. And the life that we wanted, free of suffering, will one day be restored. Even more than that, it will be glorified when we receive entrance into the kingdom of God. That's why the book of Revelation tells us the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, Jesus himself, and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My friends, this promise is for you. If you will but trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given the hope as an anchor for your soul that God himself will one day wipe away all your tears. And somehow, and thank God that he is sovereign, somehow God will undo all the mess of this world and set it right at the time Jesus called the renewal of all things.